Take your Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. The blessings found, the blessing found in enduring suffering. As we think about 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12, we'll get there in just a moment, but 1 Peter was written in a time uh, where there was tremendous individual and family persecution going on. The official or national persecution hadn't come about yet. Probably Peter was, 1 Peter was written about 57 AD, but then uh, Nero began the official persecutions for the Roman Empire from the whole Roman Empire in about 64 AD. And we know that because that's when the great Roman fire occurred. It lasted for nine days. Nero had the fire set. He had uh, been in, in power for a while and he was bored because there wasn't anything new to build. So he created a problem where he would be able to build and he set fire to a portion of Rome and burned a major section of it. When people went to try to put the fires out, soldiers blocked their way and actually soldiers went around and lit more fires. Many families lost their livelihoods, their uh, belongings and all their money and everything was gone because of that. Well, Nero blamed that on the Christians. And while the fire was going on, it's purported from history that he danced and played a violin. And ultimately, he put the blame on the fire starting with Christians in, in that culture. And Christians were not thought well of in that culture at that time in about 64 AD on a national basis. They were accused of cannibalism when they celebrated communion, believing that they were consuming flesh and blood at their services. They greeted each other with a holy kiss, which was a, a, a sign of endearment, but uh, the Romans accused them of uncontrolled lust when they did the holy kiss. Christianity was and still continues to be a sect of Judaism, and the Romans were anti-Semitic. And those who proclaimed public faith in Christ didn't want to acknowledge Caesar as the Lord and God. See, when the emperor was established, they would worship him as Lord and God, and of course the Christians would not do that. And people were divided in the kingdom on these Christians because as they professed Christ and publicly were baptized, some of their family members from Judaism and the pagan gods would turn their backs on these newly baptized Christians because they were identifying with Christ. And we think about Nero, and he brought tremendous torture to the Christians as well during that time. He would take animal skins and sew Christians up inside the animal skins and feed them to ferocious animals. As I've mentioned before, Nero would put pitch and cover the bodies of Christians and tie them to poles and put them in his royal garden. And at night he would light those Christians on fire as he walked through his beautiful gardens to enjoy that evening. He was a very cruel person. So the Christians were facing all kinds of persecution. And as believers today, with the background of persecution all through history, and even more significant, the suffering servant of Christ, how should we in 2022 expect not to suffer persecution as well? Take your Bible. Let's look at 1 Peter 4, verse 12. If you don't have your Bible, there's few Bibles, and there's Bibles in the chairs, if you'd like, or you can follow along on the screen. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of us suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And may God at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So I encourage you to take out, if you haven't already, your outline. And we're going to talk about three E's this morning. Three E's, expect encounter and evaluate. And Peter's teaching is going to explain those three words from this section of scripture. The first thing we see on your outline is expect life to bring storms and trials from time to time. You know, we have to expect life to bring storms and trials from time to time into our lives. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We're to rejoice that trials come to make us stronger on our walk with Christ. That's one of the reasons for trials and tribulations and sufferings and difficulties. It's just like working out in a gym to try to build up your muscles. Our spiritual muscles need those difficulties, those tensions in our life to strengthen us so we can trust him more, so we can find strength in the Holy Spirit and be able to withstand anything that comes our way. Notice that Peter starts off with the familiar word as he addressed those who are scattered abroad, who are being persecuted. He called them beloved. Beloved, and that's a pastoral word showing compassion, tenderness, love, and care for these people. Peter's reminding them of God's unfailing love in the midst of growing persecution. You see the, there it says, don't be surprised. The Greek word Zenizo means to be astonished by the novelty of something or to be astounded. Peter is saying to be mentally prepared and expect that pushback for our faith in Christ is going to come. In our culture, in small and growing ways, you see persecution. We can see the wagons circling believers and churches and Christian organizations. We see the news kind of tightening day by day. We face persecution because we believe in absolute truth, which means there's a right and a wrong. There's blessings for doing the right thing. There's consequences for doing the wrong things. We face persecution because we believe in the inerrant, inspired word of God. And we base our convictions and our values on the final authority, the word of God. And so that is going to go counterculture. That's going upstream against the, the way culture is going these days. We will face persecution because the gospel teaches that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. We'll soon be paying a price for not agreeing to support the 
LBGTQIA2 plus agenda. Yeah, they've added some few more consonants to uh, their, their, their list of things. Lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, queer. Now the I represents intersexual, A, asexual, and two, meaning that every, some people have within their body a male and female spirit. And they still have the plus on the end. And so we see their agenda. And you know, there's two, really two groups of people within this movement. There are those who uh, follow these things and just want to be respected and live their lives. And then there's those who are militant. And it's interesting this week, you've probably heard from Disney and how the executives leaked on a Zoom call. We're talking about how they want to make 50% of their characters in the future in Disney movies to be in a minority or part of this LBGTQIA2 group. So it's interesting and good to remember that religious people aren't persecuted, but the righteous people are. Let me repeat that. It's interesting that religious people aren't persecuted, but righteous people are. Think about, we see that in scripture, Cain and Abel. They both came and they brought a sacrifice to God. And Abel brought an animal sacrifice, which was what God was looking for. Cain brought something from his crops. And God didn't totally reject Cain. He gave him a second chance. But what did he do? He got jealous. He persecuted his brother and he killed Abel. We think of the Sanhedrin made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And how they persecuted Jesus because he talked about a relationship with God the Father. That he was God walking on the earth, 100% man 100% God. And because he was without sin and because people were following him and for a number of reasons, they executed Jesus on the cross. The apostle Paul, think about him. He was a very religious person. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And what did he do? He's on the road to Damascus. He had papers from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and to uh, imprison people who were following Jesus Christ. And interesting, in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, the blinding light comes and he falls on the road and he's blinded. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? That's a powerful verse because it speaks to me that when we're persecuted, we're not being persecuted personally. We're being persecuted because of Jesus Christ. And that gives me confidence that it's not attacking my self-worth, but the worth of God the Father and Jesus Christ. So don't take it personally when you're attacked for naming the name of Christ. Christ was attacked and persecuted. How can we expect any more in our lives? Think about it. Whatever glorifies God angers Satan. So if you're not being attacked at some point in your life, you better examine if you're following the will of God. It's not that we seek out persecution. It's not that, that we're uh, trying to be a martyr, but it's going to happen, and we should expect it. Notice back in verse 12 that we're talking about here, the fiery ordeal or the fiery trial. And in the New American Standard Bible, it means the among you burning, like a furnace melting away the dross and impurities to reveal the gold, the genuineness of your faith, it also reveals who the true believers are when we face these persecutions. In 1 Peter 1, 7, it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 13, we see the parable of the seed and the sower. And Jesus gives us that example, and there's four kinds of soils, and the seed goes out to these four kinds of soils. And one of those soils, it begins to take root a little bit and begins to grow. But he said when the world's difficulties and trials and persecutions come, they quickly wither and fade away. Why? Because they have an emotional commitment, but not a deep-rooted, heartfelt, willful commitment to follow Christ as Lord. Revealing, the strange fire reveals who the true believers are. Notice there in that verse also, it says, strange were happening to you. In verse 12, means literally that these fiery trials were falling on them as part of God's sovereign plan. So trials come into our lives, and this is normal in the process of things for a believer. And that's what Peter's trying to get across to us. So many of us here in America as Christians, we default back to wanting everything to be comfortable and normal, and that's natural. But we have to realize that that's not uh, actually how it's going to be in reality. Second of all, we need to rejoice that we identify with Christ in our suffering. In verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. The word rejoice appears twice. You see the word glad and blessed. So you see four appearances here of kind of rejoicing in verses 13 through 14. We're not looking for persecution, as I said, but we can rejoice when it comes that we're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ and to reflect his glory with our attitude in the midst of crushing attacks. He says there in verse 13, insofar or to the degree or according to which you will be rewarded in proportion to the times we suffer for Christ. He talks about sharing in the suffering of Christ and what that brings. When we suffer for Christ, it brings joy. In 1 Peter 1.6, we find joy because we're following the example of Christ. We have fellowship. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He shares in the suffering of Christ's death, but he also has the fellowship of the resurrection power of Christ. He's talking about that suffering brings a deeper, intimate relationship with God. Another thing that we share in the suffering of Christ is we will be glorified with him in Romans 8, 17. And one day we're going to reign with him in the millennial kingdom and then on into eternity according to 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 1. Vance Havner, who is an evangelist and preacher of yesteryear, said this, let it never be forgotten that although we may do nothing about the word we hear, the word will do something to us. The same sun melts ice and hardens clay, and the word of God humbles or hardens the human heart. What's the difference? How we respond to the word of God. It can either melt us, humble us, bring us to a place of repentance and connection with our Heavenly Father, or we can reject him and push him away, repress the truth, and harden our hearts. The choice is ours. Thirdly, under this main point, rejoice that in suffering, God's glory is revealed in us. God's glory is revealed in us. Verse 13, the second part of that verse, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
Luke chapter 17, Jesus said this, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. At that last day, when Jesus returns, the righteous judge, he will judge those who are persecuting the Christians. He will bring non-believers before the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And they will ultimately stand and answer for uh, their lives, their works, but also how they persecuted the Christians. But when Jesus comes, his full glory physically will be revealed. The whole world will see his majesty, his power, and his glory all revealed at the same time. Currently, God's glory is revealed to the believers in the church because God continues to reveal his glory as he has in the Old Testament times. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, we like to claim verse 20, that promise, but I want to focus a little bit on verse 21. It says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, but verse 21 says, to him be glory in the church. And where does that glory come from? Through us as believers of Christ. As we let our light shine, as we're salt out in the world, as we share the gospel of Christ, as we live a godly life before our peers and our workers and our family. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Warren Wiersbe said this, but it is necessary to understand that God is not going to replace suffering with glory. Rather, he will transform suffering into glory. So we have to go through that process. Much like a caterpillar has to go through the process to become a butterfly and be transformed. So we have to go through the difficulties, the trials, the blessings, the good times in our life to make us more like Jesus. Jesus used the illustration of a woman giving birth in John 16. The same baby that gave her pain also gave the mother joy. The pain was transformed into joy by the birth of the baby. And Paul said the thorn in the flesh that was given to him was for God's glory. That in his weakness, he would find strength. The cross that gave Jesus shame and pain also brought power and glory. So here's the application. How does this apply to us, this first point? What is revealed in our lives when we are suffering trials and persecutions for Christ? What is revealed? Are we revealing the glory of God by our attitude, by how we're dealing with it, by how we learn to rejoice that we're persecuted or suffering for the sake of Christ? Or do we have a bad attitude? Do we have a, a negative thought? Are we complaining? Are we asking God why? Why does this have to happen to me? What is revealed in our lives when we are suffering trials and persecutions for Christ? Peter presented in these verses a future hope for the believers in Christ, but also a present rejoicing while suffering for his name here on earth. The second E, the second point is encounter the blessing found in suffering for his name. Encounter the blessing found in suffering for his name. Let's look at verse 14 of 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Persecution reveals God's spirit alive in us. Persecution reveals God's spirit alive in us. Notice that word in verse 14, insulting. This is hostility directed toward God and his people by the godless people persecuting them according to the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Insulted, insulted for the name of Christ. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. I hope you think about the power of these verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a powerful, powerful set of verses there to think about. Very sobering because one day we're all going to stand before God and it'll either be by our humble choice that we kneel before him and call him Lord and Savior or by his force because of all his glory and majesty and power. And it's the choice is up to us. And it's not the name of Jesus that per se that offends people. It's what and who that name represents. I think about Polycarp. He was a bishop of Smyrna about the middle of the second century. He was arrested for his faith and threatened to die at the stake, to be burned at the stake if he didn't recant for his belief in Christ. And he said, 80 and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And the Roman soldier standing there ready to light the fire as he was tied to the stake He said, I have respect for your age. Simply say away with the atheists and be set free. By atheists, he meant the Christians who would would not acknowledge that Caesar was Lord and God. Well, the old man pointed to the crowd of Roman pagans instead surrounding him. He said, away with the atheists. He was burned at the stake and his martyrdom brought glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, you and I are blessed that we will have eternal rewards that the spirit of glory, the Holy Spirit rests on you and I, and that is our relief and our comfort in the midst of our present difficulties. When we're face to face with him in the future, he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The glory is that Shekinah glory that we saw in the Old Testament. You remember the story of the burning bush with Moses. And Moses comes along and the bush is not consumed. And he says, I am that I am. Tell my people that that is my name. We think of Moses being up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights, and there was fire and all kinds of things going on to reveal the glory of God as he was receiving the Ten Commandments. We think about when they were, the Israelites were traveling in the wilderness and the tabernacle, and they had a cloud by day and a fire by night, and If either one of those moved, that was time for them to pack up and head on. But it was the Shekinah glory of God in their camp. And then when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, we read in 1 Kings 8, where when he prayed his prayer of dedication, the glory of God came and filled the temple with like a cloud of smoke to reveal himself. You and I, the Holy Spirit's resting on us and it brings refreshment and endurance as well as good fruit and joy and it makes it worth the suffering. Remember that this is the only hard times that we will experience as believers, and then we go on to paradise. 
But for the unbeliever, this is the best that they will ever experience. There's a phrase out there, Caribbean Cruise Lines, that says, live your best life now. And basically, this is all you got. Enjoy it now. Enjoy, you know, throw away everything and do your best for the end is coming. And this is it. And then we see persecution rejects suffering due to the consequences of sin. Persecution rejects suffering due to the consequences of sin. In verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Suffer, there means trouble that comes from bad behavior that does not constitute suffering for righteousness sake. Murder and thief, he's talking about capital crimes that were uh, consequences were issued in the Roman Empire at that time. The evildoer was any infraction or disobedience to God or the laws of those in authority at the current time. 3 John 1.11 says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. So basically, as a Christian, if you do something wrong, if you do a crime, then you're going to pay the time. There's no blessing, and that's not the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about that's righteous. Notice he says the word meddler there. Meddler is used only here one time in the New Testament. These are all sins, not just crimes. And you forfeit the rights of a believer if you do these things. You forfeit the rest and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Meddler literally means agitator or troublemaker. Someone who's a troublemaker in their homes, in their churches, in their workplace. And Paul speaks to that in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. He says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul said, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So we're not to be meddlers. We're not to, to break laws because that's not persecution for righteousness sake. Persecution though reflects God's glory and how you respond when persecuted. That's what we need to do is to reflect that light that's within us with our attitude. When we go through difficulties, when we go through times of cancer and problems in our life, health problems, financial problems, whatever it is, and how we respond shows the glory of God in our life. In 1 Peter 4, 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed. Don't be dishonored because of the comfort of the Holy Spirit that abides in you. Notice it says Christian here, and it's only used three times in the New Testament. It says in Acts that they were called first Christians there in Antioch. That was a derogatory term at the time. You see, the early believers called themselves the way, and they often referred to themselves as brethren, but the pagan people called them Christians. Unbelieving Jews and pagans were called Christians. It was a sign of hatred and hostility. But Christian today is the proper term for us, because in the Greek it literally means little Christ. It means that you and I altogether belong to him. So we're to glorify God in this name, to praise his name for the privilege. 
the honor to suffer for his name. Why? Because all he has done and all he is doing and will do for his saints. That's why it's worth suffering for his name. This should produce in us joy, a heavenly reward, revealing Christ to the world, the blessing of God and maintaining the purity of the church. Up on the screen is a pretty sober picture. This is 2015. This is when ISIS had control of Northern Africa. And this is in Libya on the shores there of, of a beach. And these are Coptic Christians, 21 men, who are in a few seconds after this picture was taken were beheaded for their faith in Christ. We see it in modern times. And we see it in different cultures at different times. Warren Wiersbe said, Christians are different from unbelievers. And this different kind of life produces a different kind of lifestyle. Much of what goes on in the world depends on lies, pride, pleasure, and desire to get more. But a dedicated Christian builds his life on truth, humility, holiness, and the desire to glorify God. That's the contrast. That's the paradox. And so our application here is this. How have we seen God's glory revealed despite the difficult circumstances in our life? Can you give a testimony of when you've gone through difficult times or persecution or trials and tribulations? How you've seen the glory of God by what you said or how you act with your attitude, how it's come out of your life. And you know it wasn't you. You know it was the Holy Spirit working in your life. The last E that we'll look at today is to evaluate your heart in the midst of discipline. Evaluate your heart in the midst of discipline. The last couple of verses of chapter 4 of 1 Peter 4, 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Discipline for the believer reveals the love of the Father. Reveals the love of the Father. And I don't have time, but you might want to write down Malachi 3, 1 through 3. That's the backdrop that Peter's talking about here in verse 17. But Jesus said in the New Testament that his father's house was a house of prayer. You remember that he was upset. He was righteously indignant when he went and overturned the tables of the money changers who were taking advantage of people so that they would charge exorbitant amount of money to buy sacrifices to take into the temple. And Jesus overturned the tables. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer. Judgment must begin with the believers. Judgment there is a judicial process that renders a decision on someone's sin. A decision rendered by a judge. And Peter is referring here to divine judgment from God, who is the ultimate and righteous judge. So if you and I, we don't seek to keep our sinless short, if we don't confess our sins, you know, daily, or we allow them to build up in our life, God will have to bring godly discipline in our lives to draw us back. And I could testify and I could share for an hour how God is creative in my life in bringing about discipline. Oh, he finds ways with two by fours, with pulling the rug out from under you, from your car breaking down to financial problems to get your attention. And if you know Christ and you walk away from him for a period of time, he's going to lovingly do things to bring you back. Take your Bible, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. I think if we are believers in Christ, we can all point to times when God has lovingly disciplined us. And Romans 2, 4 says that in his kindness brings us back to repentance because he loves us, because he loves us. We're not to get bitter. In Hebrews chapter 12, these verses are not on the screen. Verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. So if you're a believer in Christ, he's going to discipline you if you are not in right relationship with him for a period of time. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they are Earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That's the goal. That's what he's after. In verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the end, we see the benefit of it. I remember hearing a story of a father about to spank his, his son. And he said, son, I really don't want to do this. This is, this is as much painful for me as it is for you. And the son said, well, good, let's trade places, right? You know, that's sometimes how we feel. But it is painful. But it's got a purpose to bring us to holiness, to bring us back in right relationship with our father, and to bring peaceful fruit of righteousness into our lives. Matthew Kratz said this, remind yourself of how much dross there is yet among the gold and view the corruption of your own heart and marvel that God has not smitten you more severely. Form the habit of heeding his taps and you'll be less likely to receive his raps. I like that. Form the habit of heeding his taps and you'll be less likely to receive his raps. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. The household, and house is used in the New Testament to describe the early church. And my pastor, who I grew up under, Jerry Falwell, said this a dozen times. He says, revival in America does not begin on Air Force One, but first in the hearts and the lives of believers in their churches. So you and I, we have to draw a circle around our lives. We have to kneel down before God and say, Lord, let revival begin with me to confess our sin, to come to him and say, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes for my will to break, to surrender to you. That's where revival begins. And you look over history, and we'll talk about it in our connect groups today as we talk about revival. They all begin with prayer, prayer meetings around the world. The church has always been established to develop people with godly character to serve in society. And this is what the early founders of our country have said again and again, that the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, our laws here in the United States, our government, were established for religious people. And if we ever move away from God as being the sources of our freedom and our rights, we will not be able to sustain this republic. 
I think of Benjamin Franklin when he took a break from Independence Hall and they were deliberating about the Declaration of Independence and they were about to ratify it. And he stepped outside of Independence Hall and there was a lady there and she asked Benjamin Franklin, what kind of government do we have? And he said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. And how do we keep that? Because churches were established to build moral, godly citizens who would be the foundation to continue on this experiment in freedom. George Washington, in his farewell address as president in September 1796, he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. He went on to say in that address, and let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. John Adams, speaking to the Massachusetts militia in October of 1798, said, because we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled morality, and religion, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other, end quote. As we move away in America from uh, God being a part of our society and public spaces, we're moving away from what the founders uh, thought and planned for this country. So we're going to close with these thoughts today. When and why do we need a revival? When we stop depending on God because we're well off and things seem to be going fine in our lives, we need revival. When the, church stop, when the church stops praying and becoming inward in their focus, the church and its people need revival. When we're desensitized to sin, when we justify, rationalize, we make excuses for our sin instead of agreeing with God about our sin, it's time for personal and church-wide revival. When God's people begin to allow the world's philosophies to come in and compromise their beliefs, we need revival. When Christians and churches are unwilling to publicly stand up against laws and teachings that directly violate scripture, the church and its people need revival. And when the church is not influencing the community and culture around us, we need revival. What does revival look like? And I'll share these as we close today. Revival looks like, as I said, drawing a circle and getting in it and saying, Lord, give me a humble, broken, and contrite heart over my sins and over the sins of our country. Revival looks like a seeking after God for an ongoing sensitivity to sin and utter dependence upon God alone in our lives. It's to approach those that we've offended or have, or have offended us and seek reconciliation with a humble, kind, and loving spirit. It's a holy separation from worldly philosophies and a commitment solely to the word of God. Revival comes when we stand on our convictions and promises of God's word no matter what, pleasing God only, even if men do not agree or applaud our stand. And then revival comes when we are the alternative to the world's philosophy through grace and truth, being the salt and light in a loving way, pointing people to the cross of Christ. And it begins with prayer, concentrated prayer, calling out to God, to show us our individual sins, our sins as a church and sins as a nation, and waiting on him to respond and reveal what has offended a holy God. In summary, it's desiring to get right with the Holy Spirit and to walk intentionally in that spirit. 
And when a church experiences revival, which in 1973, as part of a church that did that, God comes in a supernatural way with his spirit to do amazing things. In a matter of a week, on the campus that I went to college, 683 people who espoused to come to a Christian college because they were Christians became believers in Christ. God supernaturally invaded that space. God wants his church, the bride of Christ, to be holy and blameless when he returns to take his bride because he describes himself as the bridegroom. So I close with these two verses, three verses in Ephesians. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, purify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God wants us to be as clean and pure as we can be. And that's why revival begins with us. May we pray for revival in each of our lives, in our church, in our community, in our nation, and around the world. Let's bow for prayer. In the quietness of this moment, I want you to think about your life. And are you willing, as I described, to draw a circle around yourself, excluding everyone else but just you, talking to God and just say, here I am, Lord. Begin the revival with me. I'm willing to surrender all my sin and confess it to you. And I want you to be the Lord of my life, to fill me with your spirit, to help me to walk in sensitivity to sin, to pursue holiness in my life. And when you do that, God will meet with you in a powerful way. Bring blessing into your life, but also know that Satan will put a target on you as well. But ask him today to seek revival in your heart. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter. We thank you for his wisdom as we dig into his word and his words for us. And we pray that you help us, Lord, to allow you to come and visit with us in this Lent season as we think about Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday and then to celebrate the resurrection. Lord, say, here am I. Help me to surrender and let revival begin with me and let it spread through my life and through others' lives and through this church and then out into the community to make an impact on the world around us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.